coffee lovers, how would you like to drink coffee that not only tastes delicious, but transforms lives? Allow us to introduce you to our new partners, Wellgrounded. Wellgrounded is an award-winning social enterprise, providing specialist coffee training and ongoing job support to people facing multiple barriers to employment. They develop individual soft skills alongside technical coffee knowledge to unlock work opportunities in the speciality coffee industry. This work supports people who have a range of complex needs, many of whom have become even more vulnerable during the COVID-19 pandemic. This year, Wellgrounded has launched a delicious new Impact Coffee, roasted by Notes Coffee in London. All profits go towards their work to help those in need with meaningful employment and progress. Learn more about their work and the extra impact your coffee can have by checking out their socials at Wellgrounded HQ. And now, on to the podcast. And now, what's the score? Hello, I'm Stuart Horsfield, and this is What's the Score podcast with the back pages. Every episode, I will be talking with a guest who is in love with the beautiful game. I will ask them to recommend their three favourite football books, to select three songs from a list of 10 categories. Finally, they will be given a score draw question, drawn at random, live on air. This is 45 minutes, plus a bit of injury time, of football, books, and music. Hello, and welcome to another edition of the What's the Score podcast. And I'm delighted to say that I have with me today uh, my most favourite football writer, I think it's fair to say, a sports journalist, an author, and to me, um, I would class him as a social commentator, chief sports writer at The Telegraph and The Times, back-to-back wins of which I'm very very envious of for the Sports Book of the Year, twice named Sports Reporter of the Year. Books include The Incredible, The Nowhere Men, No Hunger in Paradise, State of Play, and his latest book, Whose Game Is It Anyway? Football, Life, Love and Loss. Um, The man is described as part memoir and part manifesto for football. It's my pleasure to introduce Mr. Michael Calvin. Michael, welcome to the podcast. Thanks very much, Stu. You've made an old hack blush. <laughs> Thank you very much. Um, we've tried quite a while to, to arrange this podcast and yeah. we finally, we've finally got here. Um, we're going to chat about football. We're going to chat about song choices. We're going to chat about book choices. We'll see. We'll just see where it takes us. First question is always the same. How would you describe or define your relationship with the beautiful game? Um, tempestuous at times. <laughs> um, I suppose you know everything that I do, I do for love. Uh, you know, I, I love the game, not just because of the X's and O's or the the results and the tables. I love what it represents to people, and I suppose it's always been you know my hope that I can sort of lace a bit of humanity into the way that I approach football and football writing um, in particular. And I suppose in general sport, because I got into sports writing because, well, one, there was the, you know, the usual pro you know, professional envy of being a terrible Sunday league footballer and could never, you know, make it in that sense. But um, 
it also just gave me an insight. I think sport gives you a fantastic insight into the best of human nature and occasionally the worst of human nature. So if you're a, almost like a student of, of the individual or the human condition, which I hope to try and you know, put myself across as, um, you know, it, it's a pretty damn good place to start. It, I mean, sports journalist, it, it's fascinating to listen to you speak, and I've spoken to you a couple of times. I've read what you've done. Starting out as a sports, as a sports journalist, and this is obviously I, I am not a sports journalist, never have been, and this may well be a very blinkered statement, but have you found, like you say, your perception of sport and what it can bring and how and its relationship with humanity and vice versa than when you very first started as a, as a sports reporter, which I assume would be reporting the, the details, the goals, the highlights and the, and the big moments? Yeah, well, I started off, I basically um, was at the local grammar school. We used to badger the local paper, the Watford Observer, with unsolicited youth reports, which were probably gibberish when I was about 13, 14. I got uh, TB when I was 16, so uh, that was a sort of a, a pivotal point in my development in many ways. Uh, when I came out, I quickly dumped my A-levels because I had the opportunity to join the, the, the Watford Observer as a junior reporter. And it's quite interesting, you know, looking through, for, you know, for doing whose game is it anyway, um, I looked at some of my first cuttings, My, I think it was, I think it was July 1974, I did the Watford Observer Family Bowls Tournament. And, uh, you know, you read what you wrote at that stage and you just cringe, <laughs> you know. Um, but, you know, I, I'm, I do, you know, because of what we do and the sort of public manner in which we do it, you do get approached by, you know, aspiring sports journalists and, you know, how do you do it? Why do you do it? Um, and what advice do you give? And, and, and to be honest, it's, it's not, it's not really rocket science. I always say to, to, to young aspiring writers, read, 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 and then write, 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 and maybe do a bit of, bit of both at the same time. And eventually you'll find a voice that becomes your voice as time goes on. And so you then go beyond, um, you know, as I said, for the first three or four years, um, I was very lucky. I, I sort of quite a, a rapid ascent up to international sport in terms of uh, I, I worked at um, an agency in Fleet Street called Haters, which is a breeding ground for traditional breeding ground for you know, generations of sports writers. Um, that, that you're doing going to matches, maybe 10 matches a week. You, when you were at those matches, you were maybe doing four or five different reports. So you're doing a piece for The Guardian and a piece for The Mirror, and then you're doing a, a, a live radio report in amongst it all. So you learn to cope with, what, with whatever is thrown at you, and you learn different styles. And as I say, you, 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 you're not the finished article overnight. You actually, it takes you, blimey, it takes you. you you're, always, you're always actually evolving. Um, uh, but to be comfortable at the sort of national level, it probably takes you, you know, five to 10 years, probably. It, I mean, like I say, I mean, I, I described you in the introduction as, as a social commentator and, and to me, 
your books are wonderful and, and I find them very much almost a commentary on society now, on culture now, and and where sport and you know, in particular for this podcast, where you know, where football finds itself in in society at the moment. Is it something you know, do you see yourself as a social commentator or do you just see yourself as expressing what you see through words and, and that happens to be the medium you use? Yeah, I think it's a bit sort of grandiose to call myself a, a social commentator, but um, I suppose I do use football as a as a platform for you know a pretty broad range of issues, be that social political, cultural. Um, and, you know, I think the best sports writing, football writing, has to mean, has to have a, a meaning almost beyond the, the, the game, beyond the white lines, as it were. Because, you know, the gamers now, especially in the last sort of 10, 15 years, acquired such almost cultural significance that you just can't, you know, you just can't write about um you know x passing to y and what what i what i see is almost a bit of a divergence you have a lot of younger writers now who are coming through and and i and i'm not one of these guys who say oh it was better in my day okay we had a lot of fun but it was a different world the guys coming through in in today's generation are perhaps more analytical um you know, I've never been about numbers and, you know, XGs and everything else. I've been about flesh and blood. And that's great because you need both. And it's a bit like scouting. You know, I looked at scouting in, in Nowhere Men where you have the traditional um, scouts who feel the game in their bones and they see a player. You know, it's, it's, it's just an extension of the coach's eye, the scout's eye, but you also have this emerging generation of scouts who are very very heavily data-based so you know not you know neither way is the best way perhaps the combination of both is is the best way um but certainly in in, in my sense um i suppose because i i've been very fortunate that i've traveled a lot through through sport through journalism you know i've done 80 odd countries probably I see different cultures. I see different diff, different political regimes now, um, and, and you know, and, and different social circumstances. And I suppose that translates into my writing because I, I look at it and think, well, okay, if we take, I'm going to say, apartheid South Africa. Um, you know, I went there for the um, last England cricket rebel cricket tour. Uh, when I was uh, chief sports writer on the Telegraph, in, in uh, just before Nelson Mandela was released, and it was it was it was a, a huge eye opener for me, um, and potentially, well, it was actually the, the only time in my life that I've actually taken sides where it was look, you know, this is this is wrong, and and um, but I saw how sport helped to shape that society, you know, post apartheid. And it's it's a very very um, privileged position to be in to actually see how nations evolve and, em and emerge, or individuals thrive within certain cir 
social circumstances. Um, and football and sport in general gives you that opportunity to be the observer. It, it, and, it's funny. Sorry, I was going to no, say it's, it's funny you say that because you know you talk about the X's and the O's, but it. it and, and I suppose you, you know when you mentioned about the scouts and the no women, you, you have a feel. You know, you I assume you have a feel to what to look for. The people who will create. Not create a good story, but the people who will tell you the story that that you want to hear and that the world needs to hear. I, I suppose there's that sense again of of feel of we like we say if you if you're going to apartheid South Africa, you know who are the people to talk to? Who are the people that will tell you the story that the world needs to hear? Well, that's part of journalism. You know, journalism is about it's a people business, and it's about the development of your own personal networks as well. So. Again, this is something else that I, I would say to you know, younger aspiring writers. You know, don't hide yourself away in your study. Get out there, meet people, experience things in in real time and in the real world. Rather than you know, again, and I'm not saying this is any criticism. There is a generation of writers who, you know. Essentially, they're going to an office and, you know, their job is to scan social media so that they can rehash a bit of stuff. Now, you know, that isn't journalism. I'm sorry. Journalism is actually looking at someone in the eyes or being with them at a time of, of some significance in their life or getting a sense of, of their ambition or their personality and then transmitting that down onto a page. And that, to me, is the thrilling side of it, is that you get an opportunity to just wheedle your way into the brain of some pretty remarkable people and share their experiences. Um, and you can do that in newspapers. You know, I've moved um, in the last sort of decade or so into books, and, you know, part of the reason for that movement was, one, a pretty cold-blooded look at the way newspapers were evolving but secondly it was when i was a chief sports writer or a, or a columnist my maximum wordage for a piece an opinion piece um or a feature of, of, of sorts was usually around about 1200 words um now in a book i've got a hundred thousand words to really st strip away the superficiality to get underneath the skin of things and also you know let's be let's be honest about it to pursue some of my own personal views because you know as a, as a, certainly as a columnist you know you you have to inject something of yourself in there yet your belief system comes out in the piece that you write um which is entirely different in terms of approach skill set to some you know absolutely brilliant news reporters the sports news reporters and, and news reporters in general but sports news reporters you know the sort of matt lawton's of this world people like that they have an, a they have a huge ability to get underneath the skin of of their particular story or game but they do it in a way which is very very factual and very insightful my insight comes probably through personality and then through personality i also i, I sort of investigate you know, sometimes the morality of, of, of sport, when you look at, I don't know, academy pre-academy football for five-year-old kids, I just can't get my head around that. I just find I just find that sort of commoditization of childhood offensive, frankly, both as a, 
as a father myself and, and, and as someone who's been around football and understands, hopefully, the inherent cynicism of the game. Now, if you're inflicting that inherent cynicism on kids knowingly, I think that's wrong. You know, and um, I, um, and one other thing you you learn as a columnist is that you're you're you know if you're gonna, you know, it's the old story. If you're big enough to give it, you've got to be big enough to take it. So you've got to you've got to be aware that you're going to get abuse, you're going to be criticised, um, and that tends to come with the territory. Really, it, it, this is everything. Everything I hoped it would be, and more. Um, I, I do want to come back to, you know, you talk about visiting countries. I do want to come back to some of the stuff and some of your visits to to Eastern Europe, you know, in the times of the Moscow Olympics or, you know, the European competitions as was. But this always interests me. A football writer, a man who writes books, what does that person read? Um, I asked for your top three books. Your first one is The Football Man by Arthur Hopcroft. Um, obviously, for people who are listening a little bit, about what that book's about and and why you recommend it. Well, I think it's the it's the seminal football book. Um, you know, produced is you know as a product of the sixties. Uh, Arthur Hopcroft, um, you know, was the poet laureate of the game of his time. Um, but what he did um, in the in the football man was he basically he provided almost like the tableau of the game in his time through either the individuals, be they players or chairman, through uh, referees. And it's basically a time capsule. It's brilliantly written and it's very, very relevant. You know, uh, there's a, there was a line in it, and I've, I've got the book in front of me here, but there was a line that when his introduction, which really as a kid, and I, I, Right, I, I physically. This is the book that my uh, that I borrowed in inverted commas from the, <laughs> the local library when I was about twelve or something. That fine is racking up. <laughs> uh, I tell you what, it's, it's got to be millions by now. <laughs> but um, in in the introduction, he he basically said, "Look," uh, and this is the last two two sentences of his introduction. He said, "This is not a gallery of heroes." I'm a reporter trying to reach to the heart of what football is. And, you know, to me as a little kid, that just blew my head off because this is a book which starts with George Best, portrait of George Best, who's only just this sort of ingenue who's just come into the game. Um, you know, there's a wonderful, again, I'll, I'll, read, you the, I'll read you his intro because an intro... Again, aspiring writers say, well, what's the one piece of advice that you would give when you start to write a piece? Well, one, start to write it, but two, grab people, grab your reader by the throat or somewhere a bit lower down and, you know, keep squeezing. So you do that by your, your intro. Now, so this is it here. Um, I apologise if it's a bit too long, but it's just perfect. That's okay. Right, so the, t the, the chapter's entitled Georgie. Sport can be cruel to men. Football can make a man more ridiculous even than drink can. Outside the players' entrance at Old Trafford, Manchester United's ground, on a raw and turbulent March morning, 
The wind blew an old man teetering across the tarmac, wet and flapping in his overcoat like an escaped poster, and draped him across the windows of my car. He was a thin old man with stubble on his chin and a neck like a cockerel's. There were three people in the car, but he was concerned with only one, the boy in the back who was slight and aged 18 and who looked no older. I could go on. That was Georgie Best. And, you know, that was one of George's first interviews. And it just, again, in those few sentences, yeah, they're pictures, words of pictures, basically. And um, I just thought that was brilliant. And but that set the consistency of that book. It just, it was the perfect portrait of a game as he saw it. Um, and we, 50, 60, you know, 60 years later, can read that and relate to it. So that's one of the great things about sport and football is that the emotions that it engenders and, and arouses remain the same whether you are 10 or 80. And I love that. I just love that. I, I, I absolutely agree. I, it, it's the one thing that sends me back to childish, well, not childish, but childhood behavior and, and childhood emotions. We'll move to your next song choice because this also this also fascinates me. And this is one of the reasons why I like doing this podcast is is where it takes us. Now, this is the song you always sing out loud to. So having listened to having listened to you for the first sort of 15, 20 minutes, I, I can't imagine whether this is in the car, whether it's around the house, whether it's in the shower. Um, but you've gone with um your song by Billy Paul. Is it is it something that is that is done every time? Is it something that is done when there's nobody around, or is it something that is done at full tilt to embarrass everyone who's there? I tell you, what, I, did, I did it. The last time I did it was about a month ago. Well, it was just before Christmas, and uh, we were around at some friends for, for dinner with the. Um, there were eight of us around the table, and you know, my mate's a bit of a you know a techie nerdy sort of uh, gimmicky guy, and he had you know the 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 Sonos going and he's saying right okay uh you know what's your favorite song and i said well your song by elton john who obviously features in in you know in my professional life as as well as anything else you know i'd like to think for me as my darts partner <laughs> you know that was that was his first great hit but billy paul got hold of it and actually turned it into just a masterpiece um uh, it was on the B side of, of his major hit, uh, me and Mrs. Jones, and it was of that sort of that that era was that that sort of Philadelphia type soul era, lots of strings, but it had a joyousness about it. It still has, and it, it's it's one of these things. So uh, I'm around a dinner table, and he he plays this, and I you know I had a few sherbets at the time, and I started singing it, and they all stopped, and I thought, oh bugger it, I'll keep going. I knew all the words. It was so sad, um, you know, and uh, thank God I didn't start dancing, but it was just, it, there's a joyousness to music, you know, because it can capture a mood and capture, capture a moment. And when I, sit, when I hear that song, I'm still, I'm, I'm about 15, basically. Lovely. Brilliant. This is, uh, this is your song by Billy Paul. Please feel free to, to sing out loud. 
song. This is a song. It may be a quite, quite a simple project, but that's how it goes. How wonderful life is when you're in the world. Um, and that was your song. <laughs> what a great choice. And it is a lovely song. Um, I, I, I want to go back to um, not so much the part about apartheid, but um, I've heard you talk and, you know, and read some stuff on, on Eastern Europe, and it, it's... Um, you know, growing up as a as a child of the eighties, and certainly growing up in that the heyday of of European football competition and, and English clubs and that perceived dominance, certainly within the European Cup at that time. Your experiences, I suppose, of Europe then and and Europe now. Um, what? Not not so much. What have you seen that's different? But. You know, being being in the career that you're in, you know, I spoke to John Helm earlier on on the on this series, and, and he talked about when he used to go and commentate, and there would, you know, he said there would literally be people behind pillars, sort of, you know, listening to what you were saying. You know, he said you had to be there to actually understand what it was like. Yeah, my first uh, or my first uh, foreign trip as a journo was in the in forest's second european cup winning season uh and they played uh dinamo berlin uh in east berlin and that was again you know being shadowed we found ourselves in a jazz club very close to the 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 wall uh, one night and it was fascinating because that was a that was you know they worshiped the western culture but it was also a, almost like a clandestine thing so yeah, that is you know the old you know, checkpoint Charlie and everything else. My f- my my first Olympic Games, I was twenty two. In the twenty, in fact, it finished on my twenty second birthday. Um, the the Moscow Olympics, and you know we were bugged. You know there was a click on the phone uh, whenever we would file our copy to to London. Um, all the all the journos. About there were about three thousand journos covering the, the the Moscow Games, and this was Brezhnev era, obviously U.S. boycott, and we were all housed in the Russia Hotel um, at one end of the um, of Red Square, and you know this is the way things worked at that particular time. We were just waiting for a proposed or scheduled a photo shoot with Seb Coe when an Italian gay rights demonstrator um, tried to chain himself to the gates of the Kremlin and all hell let loose because, you know, journalistically you see that and you move towards the scene of the um, supposed crime and uh, all of a sudden these people appeared out of nowhere, plain clothes, KGB men beating people up and, you know, Throwing punches at us, it got it got pretty pretty hairy. And um, I always remember one of the there was a a, a fairly rotund uh, photographer from the Daily Star 
who took exception to all this and went back into the, his hotel room at the uh, Rosia and absolutely destroyed his television because he was he was convinced that there was a bugging device within the set and they were watching him while he was in bed. And he, <laughs> it was a, he did a real number on it, you know, sort of a, a you know a Keith a Keith Moon number. You know, it was, the only surprise was it didn't go straight out the window. But um, yeah, that was that was a completely weird time. Uh, we were told officially by the British Olympic Association to take um, uh, stockings, uh, Mars bars, maybe the old pair of Levi's, uh, and a bath plug because we were told there were no bath plugs. Um, now, as it turned out, in the press canteen, um, they were they were they were serving Georgian champagne, and there were two types of caviar. Um, uh, but it was bonkers, and you had these people shadowing you, and they all had cut glass BBC Rethian accents. So you knew they were pretty iffy because you know they'd been listening <laughs> to the BBC, yeah. and you don't do that in in a totalitarian state unless you've got pretty high clearance. Same thing happened to me in Albania when when it was a closed it was a closed nation, and Terry Venable, who was managing Barcelona at the time, um agreed to get me into uh, Albania when I was on the Telegraph um, as his interpreter. Um, and that was the Barcelona team of, of Gary Lineker and, um, and Sparky Hughes. So, uh, yeah, it's, it's pretty weird. And it's, it's something that, you know, we're in an age now, aren't we, of instant communication. And, you know, I've got my phone here. I've got, you know, we're, I've got my broadband link and it's, you know, um, Everything is is now. Well, when we first started traveling, when I first started traveling to Eastern Europe in particular, we would get, we would, you know, we would be sitting or sitting around a lobby in a hotel somewhere. Like I remember one in the Crimea where the the chips were black, which was just, you know, you did, you, it was just so, you know, you just don't get you you just don't get that sort of stuff anymore. Um, but. Uh, we were sitting around waiting for a call, and basically, it was it was almost literally sometimes Russian roulette. You know, a call one call came through from London, and say so say it was the guy from the Express. So the guy from the Express would dictate his copy to the um, his copy taker in London, but then we would all go on in turn dictating our copy to the person the the Express because we knew we weren't going to get more than one phone call. So, you know, it took maybe two hours to get all our stuff over. Whereas now you just press a button, it's there. Um, so, but that's part of, you know, to me, that was, there was a romanticism about that, which I loved. And it was what I, I suppose I, I, I associated that with the, with the, with the trade, this whole idea that, that you, you're, you are in a different environment. And sometimes, you know, there is also, there's a there's a there is still a global sort of brotherhood of journalism if that's not overstating it you know when we went to to Poland for a european under 21 championship and again that was under martial law so they weren't letting journalists in but uh, they had to do so if you were an accredited accredited football writer in england because england were playing there and had they not let us in they'd have kicked poland out of the championships so we got in. We were the first ones in there. You know, basically told to behave like a news reporter, and 
the Polish journalists um, sorted out in interviews, the most bizarre interview probably I've ever done, uh, in uh, the Arch Cathedral in, in Warsaw, where we had to basically portray ourselves as, as penitents going in there to, uh, to, to, to give confession. And so we were literally we we went into a confessional, and on the other side of the sort of you know the the grill, where the priest usually sat, was a solidarity activist who was basically given us chapter and verse about what had been going on, and you know the food riots and et cetera, et cetera. So that was that was pretty full on. That was quite interesting as well because you know we had to we had to play a role. You know we had to play the role of sort of dutiful Catholics coming in to <laughs> <laughs> confess everything. Um, so yeah. So, um, by the way, if anyone upstairs is, li- yeah. is listening to this, I, I apologise. <laughs> it was done with the best of intention. It was, it was. But and so we, when we got out, we, when we got out, you know, we actually we did something that a news reporter couldn't do, which is, which again is is, is good because uh, sometimes you know you get a few sneers of, oh yeah, well, you know, you work in the toy department. Well, yeah, of course we do. But you know, if we need to, we can get out there and get our hands dirty with everyone. I, oh, I, I, absolutely, I have absolutely no doubt, no doubt about that, and, and nothing but admiration for it. Um, I, I want to come to your second book choice, and it's, it's a book that it, it always, it's such an emotive book. And whenever there's things on social media or polls done, you know, about books, this, this one um, always seems to be there. And it, it, I'm not saying it's in a category all by itself, but to me, it's a book that just stands alone. It, it doesn't fall into any category. It's just, it's a wonderful story. It's a tragic story, but it's a story that needs to be told. It's very difficult to categorize this. Um, and you've picked A Life Too Short um, by Ronald Reng. Actually, speaking of books, if you're looking for a unique gift, you know, because it's Father's Day or Granddad's Day, your best mate's day, somebody's birthday, or even just Wednesday. The Backpages football book hamper is a unique gift, overflowing with football nostalgia from the decade of your choice. Your hamper has been carefully crafted and each item has been designed and selected with you in mind. From the original commentary artwork to well-grounded speciality roasted coffee and books that will tell the story of the decade. We really hope that the minute you open your hamper, you will be transported back to a time when life seemed simple and football was all that mattered. Please visit our website at www.the-backpages.co.uk or head to our Twitter site where the link is in our bio. Yeah, there's just so many layers to this book. First off, funny enough, I really identify with with Ronald Ring uh, and his initial ambition, which was actually to write an autobiography with uh, Robert. And obviously, through circumstance, that didn't happen. Um, And I suppose I identify with it because, you know, I've done three or four, 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 I think, um, from off the top of my head um autobiographies and there is a very intimate experience um you know i, I started i did um 
Gareth Thomas, the former Wales and British Lions rugby captain. You know, we, we really drilled down into, you know, his coming out, the attendant pressures and that. And, you know, whenever I start a book with someone, I basically have what I call my speed dating session over a couple of hours. And um, if we get on with people and they're willing, they're as willing to commit themselves to the book as I am, it works. And Gareth showed immense moral courage in, in really not sparing himself at all during that book. You know, to the extent that we actually went to, we actually went to stand on the rock from which he was going to leap to his death, um, which was a, you know, a, a really full-on experience. And I, assist, I insisted we do it. It was very unfair. But, you know, we walked. It was, it was, it was a, really, a really strange, almost surreal day because we started the day spending the morning sitting in the rain uh, in a churchyard, and it was his village church, and he used to go there at night and scream at the walls, scream, look, why are you, why are you pushing me, God? Because um, his wife at the time um, had a series of miscarriages. Um, and the, there was one, you know, the, 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 the key question was, had he had a child, would he have come out? And, you know, that's the question I posed on that morning. And he said, no, he wouldn't. He probably wouldn't have done. Um, so that was pretty surreal. And, and he was suicidal, and he pointed to one particular gravestone and said, well, you know, I wanted to be in that grave. And it was you know, pretty profound stuff. So we drove down the coast, um, walked about a mile, I parked up in a, a farmyard, and we walked about a mile and a half to this peninsula overlooking the um, Bristol Channel. And it was an onshore onshore wind, and he, I said, right, okay, where are we going to jump from? And uh, he pointed to this rock. It's about a meter square. And he said, right, okay, let's let's go and stand on it. And I want you to basically re relive your thoughts and have a tape on. And because of that onshore wind, uh, I barely picked up a word. But the weird thing was, is that when we got back, because it was about 250 foot drop, it was fairly, fairly extreme. Um, we both, we both could repeat almost word for word what we'd said to one. So that showed, and, and you know, that later that night, I, I asked his then partner Ian, you know, what's he like? Because I saw him, and he's, you know, he, he, he was grey, and his, his, his face had the sort of it looked like parchment, and I thought, "Blimey, I'm pushing him too hard." And, and and Ian said to me the next day, "Yeah, he didn't sleep at all." But when I spoke to Gareth, he said, "Yeah, I needed to do that. I just needed to have closure." And so there was fantastic moral courage in there, and the same sort of. So when I when I do a, a, a book with someone, I do ask things of them which are probably unfair. Like, so with well, Joe Barton, uh, I, I said, "Yeah, I'm only going to go." and do this book with you if you go to prison with me i want you to come to prison with me he had a, a, a friend at the time who was, who was serving seven years for manslaughter and 
Lisa, I, I wanted you, I wanted one, one for you to relive the experience of being incarcerated. But secondly, just be aware that if you fall off the wagon, as it were, you could come back into a place like that. And, you know, again, you're, you're burrowing into someone's personality and you're being pretty impertinent, to be perfectly honest. But, you know, you, that's the sort of thing you, you do. And then, so everyone's got, you know, I, I, I love the whole, um, the sort of jigsaw puzzle of an individual. So where, where you know, I did Alistair Cook, where, you know, Cookie was, um, you know, everything with Cookie relates back to his childhood and the eight-year-old who, who left home to go to choir school um, to someone like, you know, did Dylan Hartley, who's a, a brilliant guy, but he, he was around my, we were doing a session around my house one day and he was petrified because he was going to go and see the neurosurgeon the next day um, because of repeated concussion. And, you know, we had a, you know, the, our relationship was almost like I was almost a big brother to him almost. And because I'm old, obviously older than him. Um, and he was saying, well, what should I do? And I said, well, look, you know, you've got a four-year-old daughter. If you're going to be a vegetable, you're going to give the game up. Just give it up. That's very easy for me to say that. I only make, I only sort of refer to that because that then gives you an idea of, of the intimacy of doing an autobiography. So to go right back full circle to, to, to Ronald Ring, I get, I get what he wanted to do with um, Robert Enke. I, I just get it because it, it, it wouldn't have been had, had the goalkeeper lived and not tragically taken his own life it would have been that type of experience and that type of book, much better book probably than, than anything that I've done, but it, it's a visceral experience. And that's what I love about the book. It, but it's also, it's interesting when you read it, it's a, it's a pretty harrowing read, but there is an underlying sort of tenderness to it. And, and I think that's, again, an indication that you know a book isn't a col just a collection of random words, just the, just like the sea isn't a, a collection of wa random water molecule molecules. It's it is it it does amplify the voice of the subject, but it also I think brings out the personality of both the subject and the writer. And in this case, um, I just thought it was interesting how. Um, you know, there were happy moments in the book. There was a balance to it all. And, uh, but I think it's, yeah, it's something which is, you know, again, the book, it, the book is much, much, much bigger than football. It's about life. It's about people. End yeah. Of, you know. And that, that's, it, that's exactly, and obviously you say it far more eloquently than I do with, with, with far more experience than I do. But yeah, it's, it, that's, that is exactly, exactly what it does. Um, it, it seems quite trying uh, to go on to your next song, and, and I apologise, <laughs> but it is, it is your guilty pleasure. Um, yeah. So it, in a way, now you, you've set the scene of the Sonos in the dining room, I now imagine that this is sung just by yourself when, when nobody's around and it's played when everybody's gone out. Um, but you have gone with Who Will Sing Me Lullabies 
um, by Kate Rusby. Does it make you feel guilty to listen to it, or do you feel guilty for liking it? No, I don't. It's it's my guilty pleasure because I get terrible stick from my kids for liking Kate Rusby. I'm not. It's not hip, you know. <laughs> yeah. She is a. You know, for those who, who've never heard her before, she's a, you know, a long term sort of folk singer. Well, sort of. That's a terrible thing to say. She has a voice like an angel, like like melted chocolate. It's just it just entrances me. And uh, occasionally, there's going to be a theme developing here, which involves alcohol consumption as well. Like it usually I, does. Don't worry about <laughs> yeah. that. Well, occasionally, like if there's a you know, crappy movie on at Christmas, I'll just go away into a corner, stick the headphones on, and put her on um, because I just go, I just go into trance. And who will sing me lullabies? You know, it's it's this sounds pretty schmaltzy, but it reminds me of my kids having my kids. And, you know, that really precious moment that you have, you know, when you're cradling your child in your arms and you're trying to get him or her to go to sleep, you know. Yeah, that's exactly know. what you mean. Yeah. Um, and, it's, and it's weird because, like, in, in, in our game, I was terribly selfish. I was really selfish, you know. I, I sailed around the world in a yacht race uh, when, when my – the two um, eldest sons were three and five. You know what? What a terrible thing to do. Um, so I'm, and I'm coming on. You know the big sort of um, you know uh, over emotional um, dad. But it's funny now. You know I've, I've become a grandfather and I cry. I cry all the time. I really. It, it just. There's something about the innocence of a child and the trust. The trust in their eyes and. You know, you're trying to get little, de- you know, you're trying to detect little traits, character traits, and um, it's fantastic. It's fantastic. And so when I when I hear Kate Rusby um, sing that song, um, yeah, it get, it sets me off. I'm always I'm always in I'm always this sado in the corner with a with a with a glass of red wine and. Uh, Tears running down my cheeks when I'm listening to that. I was going to say they know exactly what you're listening to when the headphones are on. I tell you, you wouldn't believe the stick I get. You would not believe it. I would, and and to be fair, headphones always seem to magnify it because it shuts the world out. It does. You can only focus on the music. Um, Feel free to cry. You know, you you (laughs) felt free to sing out loud to the last one. Um, This is "Who Will Sing Me Lullabies" by Kate Rusby. Angels and heaven dawns carefully told You've heard my heart breaking Where it rang through the skies So why won't you sing me lullabies? Um, well done on, on holding it together. Congratulations on that one. Yes, I'm a real man. You are. Um, and before um, before we come to the last two, um, one thing that I, that I do definitely want to talk to you about. You were in the Azteca Stadium in 1986 um, when Maradona, <laughs> single-handedly, that was not intended <laughs> how I was intending that to come out, how Maradona single-handedly... Um, 
removed England from the 1986 World Cup. Now, the goals have been played. The controversy has been there. What I'm interested in, you, you were in the stadium, so you saw the goal from a different perspective than we've seen it. And it's been shown a million times. And I have a lot of questions about this game. But one of them is, having witnessed what you witnessed, and because it's shown so many times on television, can you still recall the images and pictures of that second goal from your perspective? Or has it been distorted because of overplaying um, on television? Uh, yes, I can. Well, both goals, to be honest. Um, you know, the first goal, the goal, the hand of the God goal, uh, I wasn't sure what I'd witnessed, if I'm honest. You know, at its best, the press box is, is like a self-help group. You know, you might not <laughs> see it, but you ask your mate next door, you know, did X pass the Y or, you know, did he really do that? And, you know, what I couldn't work out at the time, something had gone on, obviously. You know, Maradona had obviously he'd either learned to levitate or Peter Shilton had basically got diving boots on. And I just couldn't work out what had gone on. And so, uh, and that that's the moment as a printer that you actually give thanks that you're not a radio reporter or a radio commentator or a TV commentator, because frankly, none of us really had a clue what had gone on um, until a, there was a, a, a replay. What I was on the, on the right-hand side of the press box, um, towards the end where um, Gary Lineker scored. So I, lo I looked to my left and, you know, basically it was, the, it was the universal shrug of the shoulders, what went on there with the hands up. And uh, the guys at the other end of the box who were closer to the action, or certainly more in line with the action, started sort of punching their, their palms. So you're thinking, hang on, is that handball? So, so that was that one, um, and um, myths and legends were, were created in, a, in, in the seconds around that. The, the second goal was just, that was the best goal I've ever seen live, pretty much. Yeah, well, it was. It was. And it, it's just, you know, I can close my eyes. I can also listen because you, know, you, you hear, you've heard so many commentaries around that. Um, you know, you, you know, Brian Butler, uh, the late Brian Butler on, on, on BBC Radio, you know, like an eel. And, and, squat, and all, squat little man, yeah. Yeah, all that stuff, yeah. yeah. Um, it's, it, and, and there was a squeak at the end of it, apparently, from David Pleat on ITV, I did, which I didn't, didn't realise until I was doing some research for um, Whose Game Is It Anyway? And then, of course, there is that fantastic, um, you know, Argent, Argentinian um uh, commentary um and to be honest you know from that moment on i was always a bit of a maradona fanboy i've never uh, you know and i'll probably get pelters for this but i've never actually been a flag waver or a fl you know i've never s smothered myself in a flag when i watched england um I l i'd like them to do well and i like them to do well but that's that tends to be as a result of personal relationships you have with the players, you know, the guys that you know and, uh, and, and that you like. Um, whereas, you know, I'm not going to you know, wave a flag simply because it's, it's, you know, I, I want England to win everything. It'd be great if they did win another World Cup. I'd love that. And, but um, 
you know, I, I try and take a, a bit more detached view of things. And I suppose that is a partly a product of, you know, of being a professional observer, if you like, you know, um, and I became a Maradona fanboy that day. It, it, one, you know, it was an amazing story to write about. And, you know, my job on that particular day was um, I was the colour man, the, the Telegraph's colour man. The match report was done by uh, the football correspondent, um, a great guy called Donald Saunders. And um, so it was my, you know, I had to go down to the dressing rooms. And it was a lot more, a lot more access at that particular moment, uh, that era. And, um, you know, Terry Butcher, who's a, you know, been a friend for you know, 30 years probably, he was in the um, drug testing area with Maradona and basically, uh, you know, it was all he could do to stop himself lamping him, you know. Um, <laughs> and, uh, you know, Ray Wilkins, who was the mild-mannered man of all mild-mannered men, um, you know, essentially told the Argentinian kit man who came in to swap shirts to fuck off, you know. And so uh, that also it, it is interesting. Terry Butcher is another, you know, it's a lovely, gentle guy, even though, you know, you've got all the, you know, the, the cliched images of him yeah, sort yeah, of yeah. having his own blood and everything. Yeah. Um, you know, I can remember having lunch with him and a, a mutual friend, David Walker, uh, who was one my sports editor uh, on the on the Mail on Sunday. And he um and also the mirror as well, Sunday Mirror. He um you know, he he said, no, what about Maradona? And this is like thirty five years later. And Terry but by that time, he just he was he had a walking stick at the time because he just had a knee knee replacement up, and he just spat out fucking cheap, and that was you know that brooked no argument. Um, time had not healed. Um, so yeah, that was that was a yeah it was an amazing day, um, and um, it is funny, you know, as as you get older, you, those sort of memories actually become heightened. Right. Okay. You know, are you are you aware that? I mean, obviously, at the time things are happening. You know, that like you say, there's your job, there's the the post match um, work that you've got to do. But are you instantly aware when you have witnessed iconic moments? Yeah. Yeah. Okay. I think so because, um, yeah, there's always there's always a degree of a build up. Now, obviously, in that particular game, um. You know, the backcloth was, you know, the Falklands War and, mm-hmm. um, you know, the, the nationalism on both sides. Um, you know, there was a degree of trouble in the game. It, very hot day. You know, I can remember people carrying beers around. There were like um, trays with like 16 beers on that people were doing. And it was still, there was, there was one brain surgeon who had like union, uh, the union jack um tattooed on his temple shaven temple and you think well you know okay mate if that's what you want to do great but <laughs> it's it's something that yeah you do get a sense and also you get a sense of occasion you, you, you it's weird you get a sixth sense of what well, you know we're speaking actually the day after the um nfl playoffs yeah, 
right? And uh, I was, so I was watching last night, and I was sort of flicking between the England one-day cricket, which is you know tragic comedy as usual, um, and and the 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 NFL, and uh, I stayed on it because of Tom Brady, because he's again one of those iconic sportsmen, and they were getting absolutely slaughtered. Um, I think it was twenty-seven-three, and every logical thing said, "I'll oh, just switch the phone off." You know, there's no nothing happened, and I I didn't because I just thought I just had this sense that something was going to happen, and that was only because of a Tom Brady in the way that you'd look at I don't know a Michael Jordan or someone like that, and um, lo and behold, he didn't win, and it could well have been that could well have been his last NFL game. But he brought them back from twenty-seven-three to twenty-seven all, um, the, the Tampa Bay Bucks, uh, before the the Rams, you know, got a, a you know a last-second um, field goal to to win an advance. So I had something there keeping me in my seat, saying, "Look, this is something special is going to happen here," and you know that you just you just get it, and it, it you know, and it's, it is it is I I can't explain it. I, I I covered um uh there was the well things like you know breaking of the Bob Beam's long jump record in Tokyo in ninety one. You know, I, I I covered that world championships in, in Tokyo and it was just something was gonna happen. There's something in the air, something and I suppose also it's part of the transference of personality. All the great the great sportsmen. And that's an overused term. They do have an aura. You know, Muhammad Ali was was you know, the, you know the epitome of that. And you know, as a young kid, you know, as I'm I'm standing, I'm sitting in my study at the moment. I can look up, and there's a picture of me with a grotesque mullet when I was about nineteen, uh, interviewing Ali or interviewing inverted commas in the literally in the middle of Park Lane, where he he'd been. And, and this is where, at the time, I invested him because of his his reputation. I invested him with with you know almost like immortality. I thought this guy will never die, and as it as it turned out, he was um, campaigning to be allowed back into the heavyweight division at the time. Um, I think for about the third time from memory, and. He was as eloquent as ever, but had I been more uh, observant, there were just these beginning start of tremors, and this was at a time where he still was virile, and you know he literally stopped the traffic. He walked out into Park Lane, you know, it's a four-lane highway, and um, proceeded to hold court. He, he came out of the Hilton Hotel at the bottom of Park Lane, where we'd been um, talking to him. And so that interview, I just thought, I thought, and I thought of that interview about, about 20 years later. I was in, um, in Michigan and uh, I was covering a Mike Tyson fight against a, a Polish pacifist called Golota, Andrew Golota, who basically surrendered after two rounds. So that was the, the story. Um, there was a, it was, that was pretty weird all the way around because, um, uh, Tyson was eventually done for marijuana after that fight, 
Um, but I was more focused on what happened before that fight. The the undercard was um, headed by Leela Ali, uh, Mohammed's daughter of, and um, Ali turned up to watch it, and he came in, and whenever he was anywhere, there was this this human earthquake. There were people falling all over the place, and he sat opposite us. So you know, one of the things about boxing is you're quite close to the the action to the extent sometimes you get you know spit and blood and god knows what else all over your notebook um and he was right on the other opposite side of the ring and i couldn't take my eyes off him and that's when the humanity of the hero comes out because i in watching him so his his daughter comes comes into the ring the first bell rings and he covers his face with his hands so he can't see what what's so he can't basically see his daughter getting punched. And it was the 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 bell there was it went for six rounds. Um and the bell at, at the end of each round he lowered his hands and he looked ashen. Uh he didn't look, he, didn't look, he, he looked almost otherworldly. He was just not there. And I just identified him not as this you know, the most famous man on the planet or the greatest boxer that we've ever seen or one of the great sporting icons of this and any other generation. I identified with him as a father. What father would want to sit there and see their daughter get get whacked? I just didn't get it. And so, therefore, you bring down the hero and you learn more about the hero and you bring bring him or her down to their lowest common denominator or the highest common denominator, which is their humanity. And then as a writer, as a sports writer, you get the, the opportunity to, you know, blather all over the page because of that, you know? That's incredible. Um, I, we just got to want to come to your last, your last book choice and obviously your last song choice. And yeah. I suppose it, it makes sense what we just talked about there with Ali. Your last book choice, um, more than just a game, football versus apartheid by Chuck Corr and, and Marvin Klaus. Obviously, you know, you've mentioned the Rebel Cricket Tour um, into apartheid South Africa. I don't want to say a subject that's close to your heart. It's it's something that unfortunately clearly still exists. We know this from the European Championships. Mm. Um, we Social media can, has the power to do good, but it also has the power to bring a lot of evil back into the world as well. The The book for you, I suppose is it a is it a textbook about the subject? Is it or is it a book that that people should read in order to educate? I think it's it, you know it's educational, but I think it's also inspirational. Um, I became you know being in, on that rebel cricket tour, see the apartheid regime or representatives of that regime just setting dogs on people, um, the poverty levels, the social inequity, almost like the ritual, the ritualized humiliation of, of human beings by other human beings, um, really got to me. And the interesting thing was that the contacts, we go back to what we talked about right at the start, about human contact you know the, the the networks that you build the guys that 
I'd been been briefed by it, who were then working for the ANC, um, Sam Ramsame, who's now the IOC member for South Africa. He was heading the anti-apartheid movement in London. He briefed me beforehand. I the guys that the activists I met on the ground became the ministers and the advisors, government advisors under Nelson Mandela. And I met Mandela um, in '95. Um, uh, again, just you know, it's one of the what's a what's a what's a kid from a council estate in Watford doing meeting you know a living saint? It's just mad. Um, and it was very interesting. I, 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 and I looked at him almost try. I tried to look at him dispassionately. And there was this, he had this, there was a serenity about him, but also there was this watchfulness. He was, you know, he, he was, he was, you know, like to say Frank Lampard reads a football. Yeah, scanning. He was, he was, yep. he, was sca- he was scanning the room. It was, it was, it was quite, quite staggering actually. But all the people that I met on the first tour, um, I've, I've, you know, I'm subsequently, I'm still, still in contact with them today. But what struck me about the more than the game book, um, and I, it was a story really I didn't know there that much about the whole idea of of the Makana Football Association, which essentially was um, for about twenty years the inmates at Robben Island had, um, um organized a football league under FIFA rules and the the and football became a form of normality for them but it was also a form of defiance because it 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 basically that normality equaled defiance for someone who was inside you know I, you know, I, I, I visited Robben Island and you know, when you go into the cells you, you just you know your imagination just goes into overdrive um, this book, if anyone wants to understand a little bit more about the culture around, um, you know, the great pioneers of the apart of apartheid resistance, I'd, I'd recommend it. But it's also it's heartening because it tells you that football can play a positive role in people's lives, but also in 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 um. You know, in the most difficult circumstances possible, and you know, I won't spoil it too much. But the, the you know, the the things that they did to actually get equipment. But there's this, as I say, there's this normality that's that that it was when he was in Robben Island, Nelson Mandela understood intrinsically. You know, he was a boxer in his youth, but he didn't really until he incarcerated. He didn't understand. By his own admission, the importance of sport and the significance of sport. Um, so it was just a bit like you know the Republican um, IRA prisoners in 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 Longkesh in Northern Ireland. They would smuggle in um, GAA results, Gaelic Gaelic football hurling results, as almost a, a you know a form of defiance. But also that's what's going on outside, and we're still linked to that we're not isolated so this this book it's just i just think it's brilliant it's absolutely it's a brilliant um portrait of a group of men in the most torrid circumstances possible 
finding a degree of release through, you know, a product of what we call the toy department. I think it's great. You should work for you should work for Waterstones or any any other publishing <laughs> company who wants yeah, I, to the who thing wants is, though, sell I'd, the market. I'd, I'd sell my own books. <laughs> <laughs> well, yeah, there is that. Yeah, your, your final song choice, and I kind of get a theme here in that. Obviously, the the life you have lived, you know, you is very much one of extremes in terms of what you've seen and what you've witnessed and the people you've spoken to and and the good fortune that you've had to speak to, even though they are uncomfortable situations. But your third song category is a song that takes you back to your happiest memory. So now I see you with headphones on the Sonos on, with a big smile on your face, having had the tears and having belted out the tunes. It's now all about the big smiles. Um, and you picked The Weather With You by, by Crowded House. It does, is it linked to a, an event or is it just a song that, that makes you happy? Yeah, it's, 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 it's linked to almost like a life event, which is that around the world yacht race we 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 sailed uh around the world the the wrong way i.e against the winds and tides um southampton to rio rio around cape horn the wrong way uh to hobart in tasmania uh tasmania to cape town cape town home uh so that took about eight months or so um and frankly you know, I, I went to, there was a really um, groundbreaking sports editor of the Daily Telegraph called David Welsh, fantastic guy. And I went to him as his sort of chief sports writer and said, look, um, I want a, a year off the diary. He said, oh, yeah, really? Where's that? <laughs> uh, I love that. <laughs> yeah. And I said, look, you know, there's, a, this, there's this guy, Trey Blythe, he's doing, a, uh, doing this race in identical, 12 identical steel hulled yachts around the world the wrong way it's never been done before um all the all the yachties think we're mad and we're all gonna die but we're gonna train for it and we're gonna go for it uh, and i want to write about it but as a crew member rather yeah, than yeah. so um, you know i'll be a participant this time rather than an observer and to my amazement he said yes it was, you know, there was no, there is if i went to a sports editor today and said that there will be absolutely <laughs> zero chance so you know bear in mind this is 92 93 so no sonos no headphones no headphones on board um so we actually made a compilation tape take around the world and uh this was the the the, the song i put on the compilation tape and i thought it was really quite apposite really you know take the weather with you well that's exactly it because you know your life is gathered is 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 galvanized and governed by the weather you know and again you know when we talked earlier on about um you know this sort of sixth sense you have you get that at sea in, in isolation at sea you know you might wake up on a on a watch go you know go up on on deck and you think we're going to get the shit kicked out of here and it, you know the forecast might not be that bad, but there's something about there's something in the air that you can feel, and you know more often than not you get it, and um, it's uh, I suppose the happiest memory of it when we were coming in, and you know, we were coming into Southampton on the way on the you know at the end of the journey. Um, part of me was really pissed off because we finished third. We 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 hit a um, we we. We took a 
we took a punt on a, on a weather system and didn't quite get the win that we thought we were going to get. So we finished third overall. You know, I'm quite competitive, so because I wanted to win the whole thing. Um, but we're, so we're sailing in, and it's sunsets coming. You know, it's dark, dark, darkness is just descending, and we had the tape on, and I can remember. You know, we were waiting to. You know, there were there was a big boat with families on, and you could see them in the distance. And this was almost like the last time we were together as just us and the, and the, and the sea, you know. And this, that, that song, Weather With You, built in out. I love Crowded House anyway. I think they're, they're terrific. Yeah, that's, that brings me back to that happy time, really, coming in and, uh, and you know, being reunited with my kids that night and, um, you know, in true journalistic style, going out and getting absolutely bravos. <laughs> <laughs> And then singing your song. Yeah, um, yeah, 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 exactly. I feel I feel sorry for whoever has to follow you with that category, um, based on that rationale. Perfect. Okay, I've got some quick fire questions, um, and then and then we're about done. Don't overthink them. Just just go with go with what comes. Um, what do you love most about football? People. Who were you in the playground? The dreamer. Oh, great answer. Um, which team just pop? Uh, depends uh, on. Who asked me? <laughs> <laughs> I don't support anyone, so feel free. Um, what was my boyhood club? I fell in love with Millwall when I was writing Family. My son's in football now. Uh, he's a senior scout at Middlesbrough, so I, I support Middlesbrough. Um, what do you miss most about football from your childhood? Oh, um, goal hanging. I always used to play a game called Wembley where you – you, if you got the last touch, you didn't go in goal. And I didn't like going in goal. So um, that's probably a goal hanging. What a great phrase. Okay. Um, greatest play you've ever seen? Maradona. Greatest game you've ever seen? And a god game. The greatest team you've ever seen? Um, I'm tempted to say Brazil 70. But obviously, I was only about 10 or 12 at the time. So, But yeah, Brazil 70. I thought, you know. And that, that's mainly on TV evidence, I have to say. But, yeah, brilliant. I, I get that. Um, the greatest goal you've ever seen? Mr. Maradona again. Okay. And the greatest manager? Oh, that's a good one. I tell you, what, can I just change that slightly to the, the manager who's had most influence on me? Yeah, absolutely. Graham Taylor. Because, okay. um, you know, he was the first manager that i really dealt with as a journal as a kid in at the watford observer i saw him galvanize a club and a community 
and you know, get him getting you know little Watford from the fourth of the old fourth division to being runners up in the in the first division in about five minutes flat was just an, an unbelievable um, experience, but also an unbelievable achievement. Then we have the downs of his time with England, where again this is where the the downside of the of, of the job comes in because you have to be true to yourself and your, your subject. And you know, I I when I was in Rotterdam when um, Graham had his meltdown in the pre-match press conference, and you know, I had to write that basically the job had got to him and it it was too big for him, and. You know, I was friendly with him on a personal basis uh, with his wife. You know, I knew his daughters, and I knew that would he would see that as a bit of a Edu Brute moment. You know, um, but I had to do it. You know, you have to be you have to be honest. Um, you know, no matter what the consequences. So, um, and you know, we 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 didn't fall out, but it you know there was a bit of a free song for a while. But it was then I saw him come back. You know, through journalism and you know, working for the BBC, and he was a brilliant companion in the press box. I think a very insightful commentator, and again, the humanity that defined him came out. Um, and he, I, I then saw he, I, you know, I saw him at Watford when he came back. I thought he shouldn't have come back, but he came back as chairman. And they had an owner at the time who was a, an awful man called Bassini, um, who treated him like dirt. I was in the director's box one, no, director's room one one particular evening. And I thought, how dare you treat someone like that in that manner? And um, that was the night, actually, with the, I was there, I was in there with the Millwall directors. Um, and that was the night I, I wanted Watford to get beat. My, 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 my childhood team and it was because the way that graham taylor had been treated and then of course you know we, we you know five years ago this week um you know his death which came as a you know a huge surprise um shock um and you almost reevaluate your relationships when when someone passes away don't you and he you know it, it, when you when you look at the way he dealt with people you know, I talked to Luther Blissett about it, and they're very, very simple qualities that he looked for in people, and he, and he radiated himself, and the whole idea of loyalty and accountability, and um, there, was a, there was a real decency about Graham. Um, was he the greatest ever football manager? No, of course he wasn't. But to me, he was the most influential because of what he represented to me. Not anyone else. That'll do for me. That's the only rationale I need. Um, <laughs> that wasn't the one-word answer, was it? No, no it wasn't, but that's okay. Um, what? Last one of the quick ones. What would you change? One thing you would change about the modern game? I'd scrap VAR. It's an abomination, a bureaucratic abomination. I love that. Uh, yeah, great answer. And your final question will be drawn out randomly. This won't be about football. Okay. You can take your time on this, don't worry. There's plenty of editing we can do. <laughs> one question, one person, alive or dead. What are you asking and to who? Blimey. 
This could be a delicate one, but I'll go with this one. Um, and it's linked into, um, I'm just, I'm literally just in the middle of researching a, a book with a Holocaust survivor, 95-year-old guy, Joseph Lefkowitz. Um, hopefully the book will come out sometime in 2023. And it's been a huge personal experience for me. So given all that, I'd like to interview uh, Adolf Hitler. And my question would consist of one word. Why? Okay. That's a great... Yeah, I, I fully understand. Obviously, we chatted before we came on air um, to record this podcast, um, and, and I can fully understand that. And I would imagine there are millions, if not billions, who would who would ask the same question to the to the same person. Um, Michael, it's been you are such a warm human being, such a warm <laughs> human being, um, and such a humanitarian. I know I I called you um, a, a social commentator. Maybe it's a social observer. Whatever it is that you do, and whatever you when you talk about this sense, this sixth sense that you have. Um, it brings a lot of joy. So it brings a lot of joy to me. It brings a lot of joy to people, and and clearly the book that's coming out in in twenty twenty three. You, you tell the stories that that need to be told, and you tell them in a way that is incredibly sympathetic, but also incredibly informative. And like you say, you have to tell the story that's there. You have to tell the nuts and bolts, whether it's it's likable or not, is irrelevant. People have. The respect and the gratitude for telling the story, not a version of the story. And like I say, for that, I'm truly grateful. And I'm even more grateful that you could spare the time to, to come on the podcast. It's a pleasure, mate. Enjoyed it. Thank you. Um, all that's left for me to say is, is thank you. And, and please join me again next time on What's the Score? I can't promise it will be of this caliber, but, but we'll give it a go. Thank you for listening to What's the Score with the Back Pages. Please be sure to follow us on Twitter at the Backpages4 and on Instagram at the.backpages. But most importantly, please join us again next time on What's the Score for more football, more books, more music. <laughs>